Good morning. My name is Adam, one of the pastors here at the church, and we're going to continue in that series uh, this morning. Trust that God's already been doing something in your heart here, and as we open up his word, trust that he continues to do that work. Uh, so we leave just encountering who he is. Um, want to mention this morning and next week we end wrap this series up, which has been all about um, just what we believe, why we believe it, kind of the foundation of Christian Orthodox faith. I mean, not what we believe is very similar. It's been many Orthodox Christian gr- groups for the last 2,000 years. Want to mention though, in two weeks we're going to start a brand new series. So I want to give you a just quick promo uh, for that series. So go ahead and watch uh, this video. <laughs> So many of us go through life wanting more, believing if we just had more stuff, more things, more money, then we'd be happy. The problem is, we don't realize that what we have isn't who we are. Instead of trying to get rich, we must realize that we already are rich. So with God's help, it's time to be rich in what matters most. So again, that starts in two weeks, first week of November. Uh, I'm excited for this. And one thing I just want to give kind of a promo for it, maybe encourage you to be looking forward to it, maybe inviting friends, is some people say, oh boy, the church talking about money. A whole month where the church talks about money. I understand the skepticism around that. I really do. Uh, here's the heart of it, though. Please hear my heart as a pastor. As I've sat with broken marriages over the years, consistently in the top three things that will cause a lot of marital discord is money. Aside from that, when I talk to so many people today in our culture, there are people just hungry for financial peace. And when people have financial peace, life is so much better and richer. And so, again, for us then not to talk about it would be irresponsible, I believe, as a church. And especially when the scripture speaks so much of it. So it's, we're talking about it to help us walk with financial peace with the things that God's given us. So a little plug for this series. It's going to be all about money the whole month of November. Uh, with that said, let me pray for us. Uh, and also want to mention before I do that, page 59, if you have your reading plan. Saw it down here, didn't want to forget that. Page 59, we're there. If you don't have a reading plan, would like a journal, they're free out in the wall. But let me pray for us, and we're going to jump into the subject of salvation this morning. God, again, thank you for who you are. Thank you for Jesus, uh, even as Matt prayed. Just, and they sang that song. I love kind of the twist that you are my vision. God, I pray that all of us would be able to sing that from a heart rich in relationship with you. Uh, that we can walk out of here even this morning deeper in that relationship and we can say, you know what, God, you are my rock, you're my fortress, you've created me. As we talked last week, you've made me in your image. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. You love us, you're for us. And God, you want a relationship with us and we can only have that through Jesus. So God, may we see you clearly. May we just kind of set aside the clutter in our lives. Some of us, the worries, the anxieties, the stress, the pain, the hurts. Even the joys that we're <laughs> occupying our minds right now, we just set that aside. May we see you clearly as we open up your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I mentioned we're talking, been kind of working through the different points of salvation, or, uh, of theology, and we got up to salvation this week. Uh, the official, if you want to know a big word, soteriology is the study of salvation. If any, you want to go home and impress your parents or your neighbors or your friends, uh, or look like the dad in that video with the little kid, uh, throw soteriology around. Uh, salvation, a study of salvation. What's the scripture teach about it? Now, I remember salvation for me came roughly at age six. I don't remember the exact age. I remember kind of I was somewhere in those early elementary years. I was coming home from church. It was an evening church service, and I remember the pastor talking that night about heaven and hell. 
And I'm sitting in the back seat of my parents' killer station wagon. You remember these things from way back in the 80s? They had the wood grain all down the side, and they had the big seat that kind of looks out the back. And I, as I got older, I affectionately called it the SS Nagel because, I mean, this thing was like a boat sailing down the road. In the back seat of that car, my dad's driving, and I'm in my, in my elementary mind processing all that I heard the pastor say that night. And I'm thinking, man, I don't want to go to hell. Couldn't quite put together the what he said about how to avoid that. So I get home. I get ready for my PJs. I come into my parents' bedroom. And I, it is, I share this because this experience is just so etched in my mind. I remember, for no religious purpose, just I remember getting down on my knees, like kind of getting down. And my parents, so etched in my mind, like my dad was sitting right here on his bed. The, the covers were like this fleecy cream uh, blanket. Across the bed were these accordion doors. Off to my right is a, a pipe that kind of comes up from the kitchen below because of the wood stove. I could still smell the creosote. kind of is, is, you know, I think of this memory. And then the, across the wall, the horsehair plaster that's falling down uh, from the old 200-year-old home uh, that we lived in. I'm there on my knees, and I say, Dad, you know, I heard the pastor talk tonight about this place called hell, and I don't want to go there. And so my dad, here's what I remember in my elementary mind, here's what I remember saying to him. He says, Adam, you're a sinner, right? Now, I don't know if you need to ask me that because I, he, I got spanked on a regular basis. I, I got spanked in the school that I went to. I got spanked at home. I mean, it was like, I don't know how many spoons my parents broke. It was just, it, I got spanked a lot. So I knew that I was a sinner. Now, a sinner in a six-year-old mind may be different than a sinner in your 40 or 50 or 60-year-old mind, but sinner is sinner. So I kind of got that, and, I, and he says to me, Adam, sinners cannot have a relationship with God. Ultimately, they can't get to heaven. So then he told me about Jesus and how Jesus died, and he kind of laid the story out in my elementary mind, and he said, Adam, you know, Jesus died for your sin. I remember that phrase very vividly, and he says, you need to believe in Jesus. That's what I remember. So I'm like, Deal. I'll believe in Jesus. So he leads me to prayer, something about God. I confess that I'm a sinner. I'm not sure I knew what the word confess meant at that age, but I remember it vividly, confessing I'm a sinner. I put my, I believe in Jesus. Now, I stood up, left, don't remember any high fives, don't remember any hugs, don't remember any grand celebration. I don't even remember feeling any different. I just remember leaving their room, going back to my bedroom, laying down, getting up the next morning, going on with life as usual. What is salvation? I've asked over the years then, uh, did it stick? (laughs) Because my high school years were a train wreck. Bad decision after bad decision after bad decision. And so I ask, what is salvation? What is its purpose? Did it stick? I mean, what, was I saved at age six is the term we kind of, we throw this word saved around. So I ask you the question, what is the purpose of salvation? What is it? How does it work? Now, when I think about what is it and what is its purpose, if I ask you maybe this question, if you're in this room and you're a Christian, meaning you prayed a prayer like I did when I was six, you believe in Jesus, you put your faith in him, knowing he's your only way to have a relationship with God, if that's you and you're a Christian, when you think about your salvation and the gratitude of it, what comes to mind? What are you most thankful for? What does your heart express? As I think about that question, I'm going to take a stab in the dark that the answers that most of us give, we may not ace the test. May not. Because I hear a lot of answers like this. Good answers, but are they really the answer? I hear things like, okay, I'm thankful for, my heart thinks of forgiveness. Crucial. If I don't have it, I don't have a relationship with God. 
So we may say forgiveness. We may talk about eternal life. When I think of salvation, I think of its purpose, I think of eternal life. Some will say, I think of healing from immense hurt and brokenness and pain. Some will say, I think of freedom. Some adoption, throw that big word out, the the theological term of meaning, I'm a son or a daughter of God. Uh, Some will throw words out like justification comes to mind. So it's God looks at me and God declares me to be righteous and good. I'm justified before him. Some of us throw those terms out. Some will talk about, and I hear this a lot, what is the purpose of salvation? And, and as they talk and express their gratitude, they think about God's love for us and how God values people. And I'll hear things like, we're the apple of his eye, and uh, quote some of the Old Testament prophets in that. But is that the purpose of salvation? All those are good things. I think of Psalm 70, verse 4. It says this, the psalmist says, But may all who search for you be filled with joy and gladness in you. May those who love your salvation repeatedly shout. Say it with me. God is great. great. I even heard some of you shout. Now, is that, when we think about the gratitude that we have in our heart for salvation, is the first thing that comes to our mind, God is great. I have God, in other words. I have a relationship with him. My contention is most of us don't go there right away. When we think about salvation, we think of all the side benefits and very essential parts of salvation. But my my heart this morning is just to say, ultimately salvation is to bring us to a great God. Now, I want to give an illustration. I'll give my wife credit for this. She doesn't get credit for the drawing. Um, But I was talking this out with her this week, and she gave me this great idea. And she said, it's kind of like a truck. And I said, this is kind of like a truck. Uh, The destination is God, enjoyment of God for all eternity. Okay, salvation is the truck. That's the salvation, and what we're going to talk about salvation is what gets us there, is what ultimately brings us into enjoyment with God for all of eternity. Now, there's all this stuff that comes with the truck. The truck's pulling with it. You know, I get heaven. I get life to the full. I get healing. I have uh, propitiation is a big word for basically it gets rid of God's wrath. I'm born again. There's liberation. There's forgiveness. All of those things are the things that we often think of when we think salvation, all of those are essential parts, but not the final good. Let me say it again. All of those things are essential parts, but they're not the final good, the final destination of salvation. Salvation is all about, when you think salvation, it should be, I get God. God is great. That's what should be on our hearts when we think about it. In fact, if I could say it this way, here's how I would sum it up. And this is what we're going to talk about. I'll launch into the message here very clearly. Salvation changes our position before God, allowing us to enjoy him forever. That's what salvation is. Now, it's going to give me life to the full. It's going to give me healing. It's going to give me forgiveness. It's going to give me adoption. It's going to give me all these other phenomenal things that ultimately help this be true. But salvation, first and foremost, its primary goal is to bring me to an almighty creator, holy, righteous, mind-blowing God and say, hey, you can be friends. Enjoy him for all eternity, forever. Now, let's unpack this. I want to connect it to last week. Last week I stood in a stage and I think God did some special things in a number of people's hearts. I really believe that. Uh, not because of my great words, but just as I stood in this stage last week and we came to the ending and I said, listen, do you believe that you're created in the image of God? Do you believe that you're fearfully and wonderfully made? Do you believe that when God looks down at you, he sees his image? 
Many of us, I think, say, no, we don't believe that. When we're real quick to answer what's wrong with us, when we try and say the positive, we struggle. So God created you in his image. Now, the thing I threw in last week is most of, if you're thinking, you say, but, 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 no, there's a problem. I'm not just wonderful and beautiful. I know when, when I lay down at bed at night last night, I woke up at 4 a.m. for some crazy reason. I don't know why, but as I'm laying there trying to sleep, my, it's dark and my mind's working. I'm thinking, I'm processing. And in those thoughts, when it's just me, maybe you relate to this. You sense there's something not right with this world. There's something not right with some of my relationships I process. There's something not. And, and we, maybe we turn on the TV and we, we look at our friends around us or our family. We know we're not. There's something wrong. Again, because that image is marred with sin. We talked about that last week. And, and, but ultimately, the heart was last week is it's important to understand who we are created in, in his image first. Because it's hard to understand our dysfunction, our brokenness, our sin our separation from God until we understand what it means to really function, what it means to be created in the image of God. Now, with that said, Ephesians 2 picks up on this image, creation picture. Turn with me, if you will, to Ephesians chapter 2. If you're new to the Bible, Ephesians is in what we call the New Testament. They're the books, the letters and books on the right side there. Um, Again, you'll see it near 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians. You'll see the books around it. Ephesians chapter 2. Kind of picks up the thought. There's a word here that carries kind of connection with last week. And I think it will open up the doors to understand this week. Start at verse 10. Which some of you know this passage. Maybe, well, that's an odd place to start. Well, that's, that's, just hang with me. Verse 10 reads this way. It says, for we are God's workmanship. I want to pause right there. We are God's workmanship. Very similar we talked about last week. Created in the image of God, we said. Fearfully and wonderfully made. Then here we have this picture. We are God's workmanship. Now, don't read the rest of the verse yet. Hold on till we get to the rest because that's going gonna, gonna to unlock, I think, some of this for us. Workmanship to me, when I think of the word workmanship, when I think if I say you're, work, you're, you're a great, you know, part of God's workmanship, I think of a guy with a hard hat, a construction scene, heavy equipment, like construction. This word, though, doesn't carry that picture. The word actually in the original languages is where we are very similar to where we get our word poetry. So it's almost like saying we are God's poetry. We are God's artwork. We are God's masterpiece. I mean, this isn't some hard hat, work gloves. This is like an artisan working and creating. It says we are God's workmanship. Same thought last week. Now look at this second after the comma. He's not talking about all humanity. Created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So we, it's referring to Christian people who are in Christ Jesus, they're God's workmanship. So it's very similar to last week, and here's, my, here's what I want us to understand. The image of God, God looks down and says, I want to restore that. I want to build upon that. I want to put it back together. It happens in Jesus. Okay, now... So salvation is explained in the verses before it. So follow with me. Let's go back to verse 1. I'm going to read the verses that kind of lead into that. The complete, put that image back together that make us God's poetry, make us God's artwork and and, and his handiwork. So come back up to verse 1 of chapter 2. Verse 1 says this. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins 
in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. Pause there. You were dead. This is the heart of salvation. I cannot stress this enough. It says you were dead. If you're a Christian person, you were dead. So here's the deal. Jesus did not come to start a religion. He did not come to make you moral. He did not come to make bad people good. What Jesus ultimately came to do was make dead people alive. End of story. I cannot stress this enough. Jesus says, I came to bring death to life. Now, as I think about death, death is ugly. As a pastor, I encounter death on a somewhat regular basis, and I'm involved with these things called funerals. And I don't care whether the person in that casket is 8 years old or 98 years old. I don't care if that person's life has been snuffed out before they really got to live it, or that person has lived a rich, full, meaningful life, and, and they, they pass away. Death always hurts. When I look out and I'm on a stage, I guess, and there's a funeral, I always see tears. And there isn't a single person, there isn't a single person in the room that doesn't look up at the casket, if it happens to be in the room, that doesn't look up in the casket and think, man, I know that person's going to get up and walk. If I were to actually do something and make that person sit up and walk, you guys would all be radically amazed. Whoa. But it doesn't happen. How do you bring death to life? No one in this room can do it. So Jesus draws, or Paul draws this analogy that what happens with salvation is we are moving from death to life. Now, look with me at verse 3. All of those who are dis, oh, sorry, all of us who lived among them at one time. So he's talking about this is what a non-Christian was. This is what you were as a non-Christian. It's going to give a great explanation of what a non-Christian is, a person who's not a Christ follower. It says this. Gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts, I think it was like the rest, we were objects of wrath. So before we get to objects of wrath, gratifying our nature, our sinful nature. A person who's not saved, a person who is dead, the number one driving thought that they have in their mind, according to the scriptures, is how to satisfy my desires, how to take care of what I feel. If I feel it, it must be good, and therefore I better do it. And for you to stand in my way of doing it, you've got a problem because I have a right to this. I have a right to personal happiness, maybe be the other way to say it. Uh, so that's kind of the person that doesn't know Jesus. They, just, they live to, to take care of themselves. And then it says, if you look at the end of that verse, it says we are, they are in that position. Don't miss this. You're objects of wrath. Well, I hate anger. Any of you here hate anger? I'm an angry person, and I struggle with it. I had to apologize to one of my kids this morning for getting angry on a Sunday morning, right? Oh. <laughs> Pastors get angry too. But I get angry this morning. I hate anger. I hate it in me. I hate it in other people. I've learned that anger begets anger, and I try and run away from it. <laughs> I try and hide from it. Now, as much as I hate anger, and I've been around some angry people, far angrier than what I would classify myself even as, it scares me. It really scares me. Picture God and all of his greatness and all of who he is in perfection. When it says he, I become an object of his wrath. That is like, whoa, God, tone it down. But it's the reality of what the scriptures teach. 
Because they look down at me, and I'm living for myself. I'm living to satisfy my sinful nature. I have sin in me. And God says, you're an object of my wrath. Now look at verse 4. There's a contrast now. I love contrast in Scripture. But, but, underline that word. It's, it's a shift here. Circle that word. Star it. I mean, this, this shifts radically because it says this is what you were, but because of his great love for us. Don't miss that. Even when we're sinners, God loves us. So it's, it's this oxymoronic kind of reality that God's wrath is there, but yet his love is there. In other words, I connected it to last week, we are created in the image of God, and he cannot abandon himself. He wants his glory to shine. So he says, I see my image. I'm going to work towards it to restore it. Because of his great love, don't miss this next one either. God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Pause right there. How did you become a Christian? Answer that question in your mind. If you're a Christian person, how did you become a Christian? What I find when most of us answer that question, we describe the story like I did when I was six years old with my dad and I prayed a prayer. But here's the reality. I can't bring myself to life. What's the text say? Who brought me to life? Read it again. God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive. Who brought me to life? Was it me? Was it my prayer? No, God stepped in and did a miracle, a miraculous work. He brought death to life. Now, this is one of the reasons. When we talk about salvation, we'd be remiss not to mention this or at least talk about it. I want to scratch into a little bit. It's one of the reasons people ask me a lot, well, Adam... You pray to prayer at six, you live like hell through high school. Were you really saved? My answer is, I believe I was. Here's why. I personally believe you cannot lose your salvation. Here's why I believe that. Yes, there's teachings in Ephesians 4, verse 30. Flip over one page, you'll see it. It says you are sealed. The Holy Spirit seals you. But here's the greater reason. If I really believe it was a work of God in my life, that I didn't merit, that I didn't work for, that it was just God made me alive. How do you lose God's work? How does it go away? I didn't do anything for it in the first place. I would go so far, and I'm going to step out on a limb here, and I know I may get some emails. That's cool. I value these emails because I would love to engage with a dialogue on it. I'm going to step out on a limb and say people who believe passionately that you can lose your salvation, I believe may need to question whether they're really saved at all. You say, what did you just say? Here's why I believe that. It's a work of God by grace and faith. It's not my work. It's not my merits. It's not what I've done to get in. It's not me trying to be a good person. It's not me. I got to be a good person. So if, if God, if I really understand it, it is grace and faith, period. I've done nothing to merit it. And I find a lot of times my friends that I engage with that say, well, I believe you can lose your salvation, it hinges on them and their behavior. And I say, do you really understand salvation in the first place? Is it truly a work of God or is it your work? So I want to push in on that. I want to challenge that. If you're in a position where you think, I can lose my salvation, I want to challenge you. Well, then how do you lose it? It wasn't really yours to gain in the first place. Anyway, 
I know that may have just stirred some things up, and that's good. I want to encourage you to search that, dig into it, challenge me, send emails. That's cool. But verse 6, let's keep with the passage here. Let me finish reading actually verse 5. God made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. So it wasn't like I did something good. I was not a good person. God stepped towards me. It is by grace you have been saved. We're going to come to that in verse 8 in just a minute. And God raised us up with Christ. Now look at this. Look where you, if you're a Christian, hang on to this truth. He seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Do you know where you're at right now? You say, yeah, Adam, at church, at Bethany Grace Fellowship. That's partially right. You know where you really are? You're seated in heaven. Not that this is heaven. Some of you wouldn't describe this place as heaven, but you are right now in the presence of God because you are in Christ. You are in him. That's where he is, so you are there. Now, verse 7, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. There it is, grace through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is a gift. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Now, here's how I'd say it. Salvation is not something we do. Let's say this this again. Salvation is not something we do. It's something that's been done to us that then radically changes our life and we respond appropriately. Which brings up verse 10. For we are God's workmanship created to do good works. I want to mention this gift idea. When you think of a gift, why do you get a gift? Don't most of us in this room, when we get a gift, think that we deserve the gift? You say, no, Adam, it's not a gift then. Well, I want to push in on this. In our first world context of gift, my five-year-old daughter had a birthday uh, this week. So we had a party last night, and all these gifts show up at our house. And there was one that was, made this one look really puny. I mean, there was this one that came in. Someone in our family brought it. It was this big, gigantic box, and inside of this huge pillow pet. Have you seen these things? I mean, these things are like, I mean, I could lay on it as my mattress, I think. I mean, this thing is huge. And so they have this thing wrapped up in this gigantic box. Now, the box shows up, and if you ask my five-year-old, why are you getting a gift? You know what her answer is going to be? It's my birthday. So in other words, we have these mindsets that on a birthday we get gifts. Think of our Christmas time songs and traditions. If you're not a good boy or girl, what happens? What do you get in your stocking? Coal. We have these thoughts that I get Christmas gifts because it's what happens in our world. I was a good boy. I was a good girl. I was a good husband. I was a good wife. I was a good friend. And because of that, I get rewarded now because I'm a good person. Now, we don't cognitively think of this, but in our first world context, we don't really, I think, my contention is we don't really understand gift. I think gift has more the picture of a third world where I am poor And I struggle to put a roof over my family's head. I struggle to put clothes on my back. And I struggle to feed myself and my family. And a gift in that context where someone, a stranger, steps in and says, hey, you know what, I'm going to build you a house. And in all four bedrooms, we're going to fill the closets with clothes. And then in the freezer, we're going to stock really good salted caramel ice cream. (laughs) For man does not live on bread alone, but he does on ice cream. Right? (laughs) 
Now, in that context, in that context, a gift takes on a whole other picture. It's not something I get at Christmas or something I get for being a good person or something I get for being a nice friend. It's something I get. Why? It's out of the goodness of someone else's heart, serving and walking towards and saying, I don't know you, but I want to use what God's given me to bless and care for you. That's a gift. That's salvation. Now, the other thing I would say is this. When I think about salvation, when you think about problems in life, isn't it true that the size of a problem can be measured by what it takes to fix the problem? Big problems usually take big solutions. Think about salvation. In the case of our sin, God solved the problem by sending his son to die on a cross as our redeemer, as a gift. If, if we could be as good and as faithful as some would suggest, God would have sent us a book, an instruction manual, not his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross. Can I state this enough? It is a gift. I don't earn it. I don't work for it. When I look at my problem, it's big. So it requires a big solution, and I can't work my way out of it. I can't be faithful enough, and I get it. It's a gift. Now, so that brings up salvation, again, changes my position before God. Look with me at verse, I'm just going to read some of them. Verse 13, for example. It's all about relationship. Verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. So you were far away, you're now close. And if you read through these verses in their entirety, maybe do it this week, not only do you get a relationship with God, but you get a relationship with other people. (laughs) If we don't understand salvation, we are going to have broken relationships in the world. I think at the root of most broken relationships is a misunderstanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because when you read through these verses, you come close to God. And then I'm going to read you this next one, verse 16. And in this one body, says, it's kind of picking up mid-thought, it's come to reconcile both of them, referring to Jew and Gentile, who hated each other to God through the cross. So not only am I reconciled to God, I have this relationship with God, then this really cool side benefit, I now can walk in relationship with people that I normally don't like and get along with. It says, by which he put to death their hostility. So anger and wrath is gone. Verse um, 17, he came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were now near. For, though, for through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Again, that's salvation. Now, the way our statement of faith, we've been putting this up for you guys to see each week. Our statement of faith reads this. We believe that only those who by grace through faith receive Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord are converted, born again by the Holy Spirit, and thus become children of God. So at this point, before just kind of closing this thing down, I want to ask the question. Are you a Christian? Have you been born again by God, brought from death to life because you've received Jesus, period? Let me ask the question. Do you depend on your relationship with God for anything outside of Jesus? You may not be a Christian. It's Jesus, period. And he takes death and brings life, and it's a miracle of God. Now, before we close, as I think about the subject of salvation, there's a number of theological concepts. There's a few I just want to, two I want to mention. First one is election and free will. We can't talk about salvation and dance around this one. I, I want to mention it. Um, 
Election and free will. Election is this. Election and predestination is basically, if you look at Ephesians 1, it talks about God predestined, God chose. In other words, with election, you have the simplistic way of saying it is God chose me. With free will, you have this, I choose God. Now, the question then gets asked, which one is it? Is it God chose me or is it I choose God? Now, I'm going to state my personal belief in this, and you may find others here that believe differently, but I want to state mine. I hold to a view that in the theological books is called compatibilism, not cannibalism, (laughs) compatibilism. I find sometimes that when people get into this discussion, we become cannibals and eat one another and really go at it. So I I guess maybe they picked the word that sounds close to it. But compatibilism teaches that both free will and election are mutually compatible. They work together. You can't have one without the other is what it teaches, what I believe. You cannot have free will without having election and vice versa. And trying to figure out how they work together, in my belief, compatibilism would state it is actually a futile, pointless endeavor. Matter of fact, I'll say it. When I walk into groups where they're debating this, I get grumpy because I'm like, we can't solve this. They haven't done it for 2,000 years. You're not going to do it. We're wasting a lot of time trying. Uh, So, again, that's a little side note for what it's worth. Here's what we can do. We can only get far enough in the evidence and the arguments. We can only get far enough in the evidence and the arguments to show how they are not necessarily incompatible. That make sense? We can only get so far in the arguments to show that they're not necessarily incompatible, but we can't go so far as to show how they are compatible. One of my favorite verses on this subject is Acts 13, 48. Some of the other translations make it even clearer than what the NIV does, but I'll use the NIV here for... Um, it says, when the Gentiles heard this, the gospel of Jesus, the message of Jesus, look at the context, they were glad and honored the word of the Lord. Now, hit this next statement. And all who were appointed, that's election, for eternal life believed, that's free will. I love this verse. They kind of, whoop, there they both are happening in the same verse. Election, free will, come together and work together at somehow in some way, and I, don't, I think it's futile for us to try and figure it out. So, again, that's election and free will. I want to mention that. Next one is sanctification. I can't talk about salvation and not talk about sanctification. Here's why it's important for me to do this. Sanctification is a really big word. Basically, it means growth, growth and holiness. And a lot of times with salvation and sanctification, we get them all mixed up. In fact, I hear some that teach almost like when a person is saved, all of their troubles are gone. That could happen. but That's not generally the way God works. Let me show you a verse, 2 Corinthians Chapter 3, verse 18, I think describes the sanctification process beautifully. In one verse, I think it sums the whole process up. It says this, And we all, who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory. I want to pause there. That's salvation. When you read the verses before and after it, contemplating the Lord's glory, I am in a relationship with God. I've been saved. I can now walk with him, see him in all of his glory because I'm in Jesus. So that's the salvation side. Now look what it says of him. Our being, so it's not, it's, it's this present tense word, are being transformed into his image. Say this with me, Nether. With, say it. <laughs> I love it. That's all, I don't know where I can say in sanctification. That's the Christian life. Am I perfect? No. Am I getting better? Yes. Now look at the next one. Look at the next kind of phrase here. Which comes from Who? The Lord. I love it. 
Because here's the deal. Sanctification, growth, growing in holiness happens the very same way that I'm saved. By faith and grace, Jesus, period. Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 to 7 says, Continue in him in the same way that you came to him. Galatians 3, verses 1 to 5 says the very same thing. I continue in him in the same way I came. Now, here's uh, one of the things that I understand the scriptures teach. This is the cool thing. The scriptures get us a little confused at times because it's an already not yet concept. The scriptures teach, like in Romans 8, that you are adopted when you're a Christian. Condemnation is gone. Fear is gone. You're a child of God. But you continue reading past verse 17 where it said you are adopted. You get into verses 20 and 23, it says you're going to be adopted. So it's the already, I am adopted, the not yet, I'm going to be adopted. You say, what is it? Scripture says both are true. There's passages I could show you where it says you are saved, you're going to be saved. You say, what is it? Am I saved or am I going to be saved? It's the already not yet reality of life. Okay? I am a Christ follower. I am made new. I am alive. I've been brought from death to life, but I still live in my earthly body that has sin in my flesh. And until that is officially taken care of, which I believe is going to happen when Jesus comes back, which we talk about next week, I am going to struggle with the already not yet reality of life, and it's an ever-increasing trajectory It's the God's work, not just all about me. So, with that said, how do I close this up? I want to go back to that six-year-old little boy. I was there on my knees in my parents' bedroom. I want to ask you a question. Was that a miracle of God? Here's why I asked the question. My experience has been around the church long enough now is, is, even in my own life, is I don't always look at that as it's been a miracle. I remember so many stories of hearing, like, for instance, I heard stories like this. I heard um, a young mom stand on stage when I was a teenager, and she stood, or a young adult, she stood on stage at the church I was going to, and, and, and everyone celebrated her story, and we should have. It was amazing. She was, had an illness, and the doctors said, you're dead. You are, you're, it's, you've got 1% chance of living. They were quarantining the room. It was a highly contagious disease, kind of like the Ebola thing running around. And like, you are done. Guess what? She stood on stage months later and said, I live. And when she said it, I remember vividly, everyone in the room stood to their feet. And they were like, yay. I mean, it, and it was awesome. I've heard other people stand on stage and tell stories of, you know what, I couldn't pay the electric bill. Months went by. The bill was adding up. It was up to $700, 750 $750.25, and I needed $750.25, and I was praying before God. I didn't tell anyone about it, and they'll stand and tell their story that I go to the mailbox. I open up the mailbox and pull out a check for $750.25. It just miraculously showed up, and everyone in the room cheers, and their hearts are warmed, and Yay! I've heard stories from missionaries coming from China that talk about the church planning movement that's happened over the last 30 years. And I hear this movement of God and how all this, in the face of the, the, the repression of China and the spread of the message of Jesus, I hear people say, yay. But then I see a six-year-old come to a baptism class. And in a baptism class, in my tradition that I come from, we have to tell our story, how we came to know Jesus. And I hear the six-year-old who knew Jesus at six, or now maybe he's ten, say, but I don't know if I have a story. Or I hear a teenager sit down to baptism class and say, you know what? I really never strayed from God. I always knew him from age five or six or seven, and I just always walk. I don't really have a story. Kind of what I said. 
when I came to get baptized at age 10. I don't really have a story to tell. I think that's what some of us begin to believe. I want to end with, we have a story to tell. If you are a Christ follower, you are a new creation. It wasn't your work. It wasn't your ingenuity. It wasn't your creativity. It was God working in you, bringing you from death to life. And that's a miracle. Do you believe that? To the fiber of you, do you believe that? See, I think for a revival to break out in the church today, I think there's a lot of different theories on that. I think one is I think people need to come to know Jesus. I think the second one is people need to be reminded of what they have in Jesus and allow the affections to stir their heart to the point when a six-year-old stands on stage and says, I accepted Christ. We all stand to our feet and say, yes, that is a miracle of God, and I celebrate with you. But a question, has hanging out in the church too long kind of made us, oh, that's, yeah, that's what we should be seeing. That's what should happen. But do we understand it's salvation? moves me from a place where I had the wrath of God on me into a place where I can now call him friend and I can walk in communion with him. I want to close. I want to read verses, do something I don't always do. I printed them out. I put them they're from multiple places in the, in the Bible. I just want to read them. Let them speak for themselves. I want to encourage you to step into these verses. Let the weight of them push in on you. Uh, think about them. Uh, and then we're going to watch a video that will kind of sum this whole thing up and then close with a song here at the end of our service. But just listen to these verses. It says this. There is salvation in no one else, Jesus Christ. God has given no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. For this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. God sent his son into the world, not to judge the world, but to save the world through him. When we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. Now, most people would not be willing to die for an upright person, though someone might perhaps be willing to die for a person who is especially good. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. And since we have been made right in God's sight by the blood of Christ, we will certainly save us from God's condemnation. For since our friendship with God was restored by the death of his son while we were still his enemies, we will certainly be saved through the life of his son. So now we can rejoice in our wonderful new relationship with God because our Lord Jesus Christ has made us friends of God. And just as each person is destined to die once, and after that comes judgment, So also Christ was offered once for all time as a sacrifice to take away the sins of many people. He will come again, not to deal with our sins, but to bring salvation to all who eagerly waiting for him. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you so much uh, for uh, Jesus. Thank you for the gift of salvation that we have through Uh, your son, and the blood that he shed on the cross for our sin. Father, I pray that you would work in our hearts, that you would remind us of that joy that we can have, that we do have in you, the eternal life that you've given us. Father, I pray that we would live with great boldness and courage, knowing uh, that you have given us this great hope of salvation. Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here this morning, anybody in this room that uh, has yet to make that jump, has yet to put their faith in you, 
Lord, I pray that this morning would be the morning. I pray that you would be working in their hearts even now, that they would see uh, your great love for them and uh, the salvation that's available through Jesus. Uh, Lord, I pray for us as a church that we would be a place, uh, that we would be a people. Lord, that as people come into contact with us, they would see uh, the hope that we have in you and that we would be people that are full of joy, um, just lasting joy uh, because of what you've done. In Jesus' name, amen.